Welcome to Cal St. G Academy, the educational podcast of the Parish of Calvary St. George's. These podcasts are intended to inform and deepen your faith so that you can share your faith thoughtfully with the world around you. For more information about the parish, go to calvarystgeorges.org. And now, break out your moleskin prayer journal, and let's get started. The Year of the Bible is a series of Cal St. G Academy. Each episode will cover a new book of the Bible in a concise, in-depth, and ultimately edifying way. These lectures are recorded live each week at Calvary Church in New York City. So welcome to our foreign discussion on the Minor Prophets, otherwise known as the Book of the Twelve. Before we begin, I actually want to wax nostalgic for a moment about cassette tapes. Remember these? At least for those of us who are like over maybe 35, remember these? Um, You stick it in the tape player and you just listened. You could rewind, but it was difficult to ensure that you would start it at the exact beginning of a song. So you listened to it over and over again, and soon by the last few chords of each song, you could anticipate what was coming next. You associated songs with each other based on which ones preceded and followed them. CDs started to erode this concept. You could still listen to the whole album through, but now suddenly there was the capacity to start on a different song easily, and maybe even more importantly, you could skip over that really annoying song that you didn't like and still listen to the rest of the album. And since this isn't actually a dissertation on the advances of audio technology in the past 20 years, I'll skip over iPods and land straight on Spotify. The essence of the single song. Download the app, type in a song name, and play it. Just like that, no album, no context, just the song. Now you're probably wondering what this has to do with the Minor Prophets, but I'm just going to let it simmer for a minute. As you all know, I'm discussing 12 books today, and when Ben first told me that this was his plan, I thought he was crazy. And honestly, if the Minor Prophets were like all the other books of the Bible, he probably would be crazy to structure it in this way. Um, If I spent even four to five minutes per book, that would be a pretty long forum and still only a surface-level discussion of each. But the minor prophets are different in that they have historically been treated as one book. This treatment of them as one collection predates the New Testament, but over the past 200 years or so, it fell out of vogue with biblical scholars, who have instead tended to focus on each prophet individually in his historical context. In the past few years, however, there's been a renewed interest in the idea of the Book of the Twelve. One person specifically who has done a significant amount of research on this is Christopher Seitz, and I'm relying extensively on his book, Prophecy and Hermeneutics, for this lecture. Throughout the class today, I hope to accomplish several things. One, explain to you why the Minor Prophets are considered one collection. Two, show some of the pitfalls of isolating the prophets from each other. And three, argue that treating them as a unit strengthens both our historical and our theological understanding. Then I'll wrap up with a few specific examples of how the books interact with each other. While you won't walk away from here able to summarize each book, I hope that you will walk away from here with a structure to go read them yourself and see the associations between them that deepen our understanding of our faith. So... Why are the Minor Prophets called the Book of the Twelve? This is an important question to ask because they do not refer to themselves in this way, and it's not clear from a prima facie reading of the Prophets that they should be taken as one book. 
David Peterson, in his article, A Book of the Twelve, question mark, summarizes the primary arguments for taking the prophets as a unified collection. So, following his article. First, although the manuscript tradition is not uniform on this, in general, the minor prophets are transmitted to us as a group in the different manuscripts. There's one Hebrew manuscript and one Greek one which contain all 12 minor prophets, but neither of them actually titles them as a book or the book of the 12. Next, Peterson says, quote, Jewish scribal practice, as stated in the Babylonian Talmud, required that four empty lines be left between books, except between the minor prophets, where three lines were permitted, end quote. This would indicate that these books are considered more closely associated with each other than other books of the Bible. Collectively, the minor prophets are slightly longer than Ezekiel, not quite as long as Isaiah. Um, But again, there's no identified editor or redactor, but lengthwise they're about the same as the other major prophets. There are two different principles of order that are used to argue that they're one book or collection. The first is that there's some basic underlying chronological order to the books, and we'll talk more about that later. Um, And the second is that there are words or phrases that appear at the end of one book and the beginning of the next, such as there's a phrase about God roaring on behalf of his people that happens at the end of Joel and the beginning of Amos, um, which could indicate that an editor inserted them to connect these books to each other. and Peterson refers to these as catchwords. And lastly, there are connecting themes, the clearest of which is the day of the Lord, which is the theme that shows up in 10 of the 12 books, not in Nahum or Jonah, but in all the rest. And Peterson sees this as the main theme of the book of the 12 and calls it, quote, a tradition by means of which these prophets could explore both the devastation of judgment and possibilities of life beyond destruction as they addressed Israel's existence for the better part of half a millennium, end quote. So ultimately, none of these arguments by themselves are strong enough to consider the minor prophets a single book, especially considering the modern connotations of what makes a book. You need an author or editor, a publisher, etc. Um, for these reasons, Peterson ultimately lands on the phrase, a thematized anthology, But taken together, these arguments are a strong indication that these prophets were intentionally placed together in manuscripts in a specific order for a specific purpose. Whether we call it a book, a collection, or an anthology, I'm going to operate under the assumption that they're meant to be read together. So, however, as I said earlier, for the past 200 years, this has not been the operating assumption for the study of the prophets in general or the minor prophets specifically. The dominant structure of biblical studies since the late 1700s has been the historical critical method in which biblical scholars have focused deeply on the historical context for each book and attempted to fit any interpretation of the theological content into that historical context. So Seitz explains this method in two ways. There was a focus on the time or times and on the author. In referencing the times, scholars asked what the socio-political setting was, what were the other writings that were available to the author, what was his intent, who was his audience, what did his message mean to them, etc. When it came to the author, they wanted to know who he was and what was his unique perspective. What did he bring to his message that was different from the other prophets? 
This method of studying scripture has a lot of benefits. It's given us an in-depth look at these minor prophets and at the times in which they lived and moved and spoke. So let's take an initial look at where each of these prophets will fall under this method of interpretation. I know that this is a small slide, so the reading may be difficult, but I'll sort of point out what we're looking at. Um, The historical critical method is much easier with some books than with others. There are six minor prophets who have a clear date reference at the beginning of the text that indicates when the prophets spoke. So if we look at them in chronological order, first off we have Amos, the first blue line up there, kind of in the middle. And he prophesied during the reign of Uzziah, king of Judah, and Jeroboam, king of Israel. Next we have Hosea, who lived during the reigns of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. So he comes slightly after Amos and seems to prophesy for a longer period of time. Then there's Micah, who overlaps with the latter part of Hosea. And then Zephaniah skips down to during Josiah's reign. Both Haggai and Zechariah are dated by King Darius's reign instead of by the kings of Israel or Judah. So by this point, we are clearly in the time of the exile. Those are the books where the biblical witness itself clearly indicates their time period. And those are all the ones underlined in the light blue. Scholars debate about the other six. Nahum isn't dated, but it prophesies about the fall of Nineveh, so we know that it has to take place before 612 BC. Habakkuk is roughly contemporaneous with Zephaniah. Malachi is definitely post-exilic. The book talks about the state of Israel after the return from exile. And those ones are in orange because those are ones where we're pretty confident what the dating is, even though there's not a specific date mentioned in the text. Obadiah prophesies against Edom for its participation in the destruction of Judah, so it's generally placed in the early 6th century, around when the destruction happened. We know Joel is on the later side, perhaps even post-exilic, although this particular schema doesn't put him there, because it's clear through his writing that he had access to many of the prophetic books, so they'd already been written by the time that book was written. Finally, Jonah is the trickiest. 2 Kings 14 refers to a prophet named Jonah who prophesied under Jeroboam II, king of Israel. If this is our Jonah, then he was the earliest of the minor prophets. And you can see this schema puts him at the earliest, that first red mark. Um, However, based on linguistic arguments, it's pretty clear that the book of Jonah was written much later on in Israel's history, probably during the post-exilic period. Some redactors made the book of Jonah the last of the prophetic books in their manuscripts. But we'll get, to, we'll get to Jonah more in a minute. So you can see the red lines are the ones where we're really unsure where these, when these prophets actually prophesied. We don't really have anything clear to date them on. So obviously, understanding these historical contents, contexts is very important. Consider the theme of the day of the Lord. This phrase... And the concept of judgment, which is often, though not always, associated with it, will mean something very different to a pre-exilic, an exilic, or a post-exilic people. The concerns that Malachi addresses in looking at these Israelites who have seen the mercy of God in their return from exile and still refuse to take God's covenant seriously are different from the concerns of Hosea and Amos, who are crying out to God's people to repent from their sin, long before the reality of being handed over to an invading nation has even like started to hit home. 
But there are things that this method can't account for. And if we focus too closely on the historical context, then we lose the larger picture of what happens when you put books into the canon, which is Seitz's main argument in, in prophecy and hermeneutics. So let's take a look specifically at Jonah to consider this. We all know and love the story of Jonah. God tells Jonah to go warn Nineveh, the capital of Assyria, Israel's enemy of its impending doom, and Jonah flat out refuses, skips town, and takes a ship to Tarshish, which is code for the end of the world. A huge storm arises, and the sailors on the boat are convinced they're all going to die. Jonah glumly accepts that this is all because of him, and tells the sailors to throw him overboard so that God won't kill all of them in an attempt to punish him for his disobedience. But rather than let Jonah drown, God sends a big swish big fish to swallow him alive. <clears throat> and while marinating in its gastric juices, Jonah figures that, hey, maybe going to Nineveh isn't such a bad idea. So the fish spits him out, and he wanders off to Nineveh. Once there, the Ninevites repent, and God relents, and Jonah once again goes off in a huff, this time because he's so angry at God's mercy. It's a great story. But what does it mean? In terms of historical context, there are some difficulties of interpretation here. First off, this book seems to directly contradict the book of Nahum, where God is incredibly angry at Nineveh. Nahum 1, 7-9 says, The Lord is good, a refuge in times of trouble. He cares for those who trust in him, but with an overwhelming flood, he will make an end of Nineveh. He will pursue his foes into the realm of darkness. This is a far cry from Jonah, where God relents and says he will not bring destruction on them. In the end, historically, we know that God does destroy Nineveh. We also know that because Jonah was written very late in Israelite history, that the author of Jonah knew that God had already destroyed Nineveh when he wrote the scroll. So what is he trying to say? Seitz summarizes it this way, quote, Taken in isolation, Jonah admits of a variety of interpretations. Jonah is said to be about God's universal care for all nations. Jonah is about the problem of unfulfilled prophecy. Jonah is about Israel's hard-heartedness and xenophobia. Jonah is a commentary on the unreliability of prophecy and the dissolution of the prophetic office. End quote. You can see how each of these interpretations seems to have merit when Jonah is taken on its own. God says something will happen. It doesn't within the context of the book, but does later, and every reader would have known that. What does that say about what it means to prophesy? Jonah is pretty much a jerk. Does he represent the nation of Israel as a whole? In addition to being a jerk, he's, quote, so angry he wishes he were dead, End quote, in Jonah 4.9. If Jonah was written last, and sometimes positioned last, is Jonah's angry outburst a final word or a final interpretation of what prophecy was and why the prophetic office ultimately ended? But as Seitz points out, each of these interpretations is based on Jonah's author's placement in late post-exilic history. What happens when you consider that the author seems to be making a direct connection to the Jonah of 2 Kings, who was considered a successful true prophet? 
This will require a rethinking of the book, one that does not disregard its late authorship, but does associate the book and its message alongside the other minor prophets and considers it within its canonical context. And we'll, we'll come back to Jonah later and talk more about this. <clears throat> so, if the historical critical method is insufficient to interpret and understand the minor prophets, what do we do instead? Sites goes back to the argument that these books are meant to be one collection, read and studied in the order given to us. He calls this the canonical historical method. This method doesn't naively discard all the information that the historical critical method brought us, but it acknowledges that these books were edited and given to us in a specific order for a specific reason, and we can deepen both our historical and theological understanding of them if we approach them in that order. As Seitz puts it, quote, a balancing act is now required. The interpreter must indeed do justice to historical reference and must inquire about the individual prophetic witnesses of the 12, their possible historical sequence, their reporting of historical events, and so forth. At the same time, it is clear that a larger historical project must be respected in the 12. It appears that the earliest tradents, those who are passing them on, were themselves concerned not with individual historical prophets and their messages in this or that period, but with the correlation of these prophets and their messages in the name of the large-scale account of Yahweh's dispensation of history under his providential care and sovereignty, end quote. What this means is that the redactors or tradents who put these books together into their final form were just as concerned about how the books related to each other and what message they passed on about God as a whole as they were about the individual message in each book. The, this consideration of these books as a whole allows different themes to be parsed out, amplified, and revisited in different scenarios and for, and for different sides of God's character, for example, justice versus mercy, to be viewed in different situations, which gives us a much deeper and richer understanding of who God is. One of the underlying assumptions of this viewpoint is that God is working through the redactors or the tradents to reveal his character. God did not simply speak his word through the original prophet and leave it be, but continues to preserve it so that future generations can hear and respond to it as well, and also benefit from the inspired wisdom of the redactors who selected specific material and built a collection. However, this viewpoint also requires us to accept the final form of the work as authoritative. This means that in the Book of the Twelve, which we have in front of us, the books as they are written are complete, and their order in the canon is correct. And unfortunately, that's not as simple as it sounds. Various traditions list the books of the Old Testament in different orders, for instance. Um, and other people, so we've got the Hebrew Bible, which... Um, the Jewish people use, and then the Christian Old Testament on the other side. Um, and other people in this forum series have referenced this. For instance, when Ben taught on Chronicles, he pointed out that in the Hebrew scriptures, it's the last book of the Old Testament, whereas for us, it falls after kings. In the bigger picture, in the Hebrew scriptures, the law in the form of the Pentateuch comes first, then the major prophets, which for them includes Joshua, Judges, Samuel, and Kings, then the minor prophets, 
and then the rest of the Old Testament books covered under the heading of the writings. But in our Christian Bible, we have the Pentateuch, history, and writings, major prophets, and then we end with the minor prophets. So then looking at the smaller picture, with the manuscripts that contain the minor prophets themselves have them arranged in different orders. So how can Seitz and others argue that they have an intentional order and that we should read them in that order instead of maybe as a loose collection with some thematic similarities? I'm not going to address all the various orders that exist, for example, the minor tradition that puts Jonah last, but I'll explain how Seitz works his way through the biggest two, the Masoretic text and the Septuagint. The Masoretic text is the text that we have that was written in Hebrew, um, and it contains the order which has been maintained by both the Hebrew and the Christian Old Testament. So whether you're Jewish or Christian, this is the order of the books as, they sh- as it shows up in your Bible. But as you can see, the order is a little bit strange. I've kept the coloring of the books from the previous slide. So the books whose dates are known are the ones in light blue. Um, And they are in chronological order, except for Hosea and Amos, which is a special case that I'll get to later. Then there's the books in orange, which, if you remember from earlier, are ones that don't have clear dates, but have historical references that make us pretty confident about dating them. Um, And if we take all the blue and orange together, that's basically in chronological order. But then we get these three other books, the ones in red, Joel, Obadiah, and Jonah. They don't have specific dates in them, so we can't date them definitively, but we can be pretty sure that these books are not in chronological order. In other words, if chronology were the only thing the redactors were concerned about, they would have ordered these three differently. As an aside, this is not a point of universal agreement. There are scholars, starting as early as St. Jerome, and as, mo- and as recently as E.B. Pusey, who have worked very hard to argue that all of these books are in chronological order, and that the dateless ones are placed next to dated ones to help us know how to date them. However, the information that we have about these three books in red from the historical critical method shows us that it just isn't tenable. Remember, Jonah was potentially the oldest prophet if he's the one named in Kings, but the book was written last, so no matter what your principles of chronology are, he, he can't go in the middle. Um, And this is why it's so important to pay attention to the historical critical method, even as we try to understand the principles of canon formation and privilege the final form of the canon as it's handed down to us. The Septuagint, which is the other major manuscript that gives us all 12 books together, and which is the Greek language translation of the Old Testament, tackles the problem of chronology in a different way. It actually reorders the book to make the order make more sense chronologically. You can see that essentially it has made minimal changes by adjusting the position of Amos and Micah to make two groupings of chronological books surrounding one grouping of short, undated books. Seitz, following another scholar, Eric Sharp, relies on the premise of the easiest explanation to argue that this actually shows us that the Masoretic text is the earlier order and the one that we should be using. It's far easier to understand how the Septuagint was trying to, quote, recast a strange Masoretic text order along the lines of its classification intuitions known elsewhere, end quote, than it is to understand it vice versa. 
The Septuagint simply thought it makes more sense for this to be chronological, so we're going to reorder these books and make them chronological. However, if we can explain an organizing principle that goes deeper than chronology, then that will show us how the earliest tradents of these texts wanted us to make other associations between these books. And here's how Sites tackles that. <clears throat> First, Hosea and Amos. If you remember, we all know that Amos prophesied at least a little bit earlier than Hosea, and that's universally accepted. There's not much argument about that. So then, why isn't it first, based on the chronological assumption, and why don't I have Amos and Hosea highlighted in red here? First, there's no extant scroll in which Amos is ever placed in the primary position. So Hosea's got that one in the bag. Everybody agrees that Hosea should go first. And in a little bit, I'll talk about some of the theological reasons for why Hosea is first, but we'll leave it for now. Second, according to the Old Testament scholar George Jeremiah, it's clear that the messages that are handed down to us in Hosea and Amos are dependent on one another, which would indicate that perhaps it was pupils of Amos who wrote down his words later, even though he lived first. For example, although Hosea is a prophet to the northern kingdom of Israel, there are verses where Hosea references Judah and uses very similar wording to Amos' prophecies. So it seems like Hosea had access to Amos' text and his prophecies when, he, when that was written. And on the flip side, as Amos is explaining why God will ultimately destroy the northern kingdom, he seems to be summarizing a lot of Hosea's arguments. So it seems like that also had access to Hosea as Amos was being written. According to Jeremiah's quote, the words of Hosea and Amos were not to be read with historical interest for a distant past, but with a current interest in their words as a help for present problems, end quote. He argues that there was no historicizing or localizing of their two messages, and the messages were not to be isolated from each other, that they were meant to be seen as a whole and to be relevant to the people who were reading them in the current day, not just when the words were spoken. And this allows for Hosea to take the first position in the canon as the oldest prophetic writing, even though it's not the, he's not the oldest prophet. So, next, Seitz asks, if Hosea and Amos are so closely related, why stick Joel right in the middle of them? Which seems to be the same question that the Septuagint was asking, like, this just doesn't make sense. Um, <clears throat> one reason is that Joel carries two themes that are further developed in Amos. The book begins with an intense description of a plague of locusts that has ravaged the land and then warns the people about the impending day of the Lord, which will bring great destruction. Amos refers to both the locusts and the day of the Lord as well, and the reader is more primed for this because she's already heard about them in Joel. But more importantly, Joel lays out the possibility of God relenting from the promised destruction, which Amos also develops further. In Seitz's words, quote, Joel separates Hosea and Amos to signal that God is always in a position to relent if the people turn back. The sequence of Hosea, Joel, Amos emphasizes this possibility of escape from judgment. Next, read, next book in red is Obadiah. The sequence Joel, Amos, Obadiah is actually a bit easier to understand because each of these books specifically addresses the issue of Edom's relationship to Israel. So Edom was a neighboring country, and its inhabitants are descendants of Esau, who was Jacob's brother. 
So these people groups are related, but they haven't always gotten along, and God is planning to turn his wrath against Edom. Both Amos and Obadiah explain that this is because Edom pursued his brother with a sword, which refers to Edom's help in the destruction of Judah. And that's also what allows us to date Obadiah as much later. Joel specifically names Edom as one of the nations that will stand before the Lord for judgment because of its treatment of Israel. So although chronologically it would make more sense for Obadiah to be much later in the order, Seitz argues that thematically it makes much more sense for it to be placed in this sequence with Joel and Amos because all three books seem to be focusing on the question of what's going to happen to Edom. All right, so... Our last book that's been oddly placed is Jonah. So let's go back to Jonah. We already discussed why this is such a tricky book from a historical critical standpoint and how its interpretation is fraught when it is viewed in isolation. How does its place in this order give us insight into the point of the book and into God's character? So... Its placement directly following Obadiah actually provides a counterpoint to the judgment expressed against Edom. God destroys Edom in Obadiah, but forgives Nineveh in Jonah. This shows us that God is open to repentance from all the nations, not just from Israel and Judah. Seitz argues also that the sequence of Hosea, Joel, Amos has primed readers with a context for this, because they've already heard about how God will forgive those who repent. In addition, if we look at the two books that follow Jonah, Micah and Nahum, both of them deal with prophecies about Assyria and Nineveh as well. Micah prophesies about the destruction of Judah by Assyria, but ends with another reminder of God's willingness to forgive by saying that the destruction won't last forever. Then Nahum opens with a picture of God's wrath against the Ninevites. The Lord is slow to anger but great in power. The Lord will not leave the guilty unpunished, Nineveh 1.3. The reader, who has just been reminded of God's mercy towards Nineveh and Jonah, now sees Assyria as a tool of judgment against the Israelites in Micah, and then finally sees it as the object of God's wrath in Nahum. As Sight says, quote, Jonah shows that God has no mechanical attitude towards the nations. God will apply his twin attributes of justice and mercy as he sees fit. God will forgive the repentant, but God will also punish the guilty, and a single act of repentance doesn't forestall punishment forever. God longs to forgive, but his justice must be upheld. Reading these books in the order given to us emphasizes these aspects of God's character in a way that reading them in isolation does not. It also allows us to sit with the complexity of God's character and not try to figure him out and put him in a box. So the remaining minor prophets here, the ones in blue and orange, are in chronological order and they don't need as much special explanation. We will come back to them later. But for now, I hope that I've at least started to explain why the specific order of these books is meaningful. All right. This is a lot and it's Super heady, so let me recap by going back to the 80s child analogy that I made at the start. Some scholars have treated the minor prophets like Spotify. 
Let's search for an individual book, read it by itself, explore its historical context, and learn about what its individual message meant. Instead, perhaps, we should treat it like a cassette tape. Start it at the beginning and go all the way through and let those associations that happen as we end one book and begin another work their way into our understanding of God. And I will admit you can make an argument that really with a CD you can do both because you can listen from start to finish and you can also kind of easily isolate an individual book to look at its historical context. But you also have the danger of skipping your least favorite book with the CD model, so I'm going to stick with the cassette tape for my analogy. I promised you that I would do one more thing in this forum, and that is to give you a context in which you can go explore and read these books on your own. So what I'm going to do next is summarize two frames that rely on the order of the books and will help you place their ideas and themes into a context of God's character as it's revealed to us. So the first frame is one that was developed by Paul House in an article entitled, The Character of God in the Book of the Twelve. House argues for a trifold revelation of God's character, as the God who warns in the first six books, then as the God who punishes in the next three, and finally as the God who renews in the last three. While each of these books contains elements of God's warning, justice, and forgiveness, this frame fits into our overall argument that the order of these books is showing us something about God's character. That God warns us about the consequences and impacts of our sin, that God punishes the guilty, and that God forgives, renews, and restores. So let's look at each individual title that House came up with. We start with the books where God warns about sin. The God who warns and loves. The frame of Hosea is the story of how God asks Hosea to marry an adulterous woman and to take her back again and again despite her adultery, which is an allegory for how God responds to Israel's sin. According to House, this book shows God as, quote, a loving yet betrayed spouse, dishonored parent, and mighty judge, and threats, comfort, and promise coexist to demonstrate the magnitude of the Lord's person, end quote. Next, the God who warns and promises. As we discussed earlier, Joel starts with a horrifying description of the destruction of Israel by locusts, but ends with a promise that God will forgive and renew those who repent. The God who roars against sin. In Amos, God is described as roaring against the people. The prophet lists Israel and all its Gentile neighbors and outlines how God will punish each of them for their sin. The God who warns against pride. Obadiah identifies pride as the reason Edom is being judged along with its violence against Judah. The God who warns the Gentiles. Jonah shows that God cares for all people, not just for the Israelites. In House's words, quote, the same God creates, calls, reveals, judges, and forgives. There is no other deity able to do these things. End quote. And the God who testifies against sin. Micah calls the Israelites to repent from sin while it's still possible. There's also an important prophecy about the Messiah in this book that I'll return to at the end. So at this point, we shift to the books about God's destruction. So we have the God who destroys Assyria. 
In Nahum, it appears that the repentance of the Jonah episode was short-lived. However, the placement of this book after the books of warnings shows God to be just and not vindictive, capricious, or cruel. The God who inspires faith in crisis. In this book, Habakkuk questions God. Why does one sinful nation destroying another equal justice? The fact that this book outlines the destruction of the nations justifies its collection in the punishment category. But we also see Habakkuk, through his questions, understanding that ultimately he must, quote, live by faith despite the fact that Israel and Babylon must fall before his faith will be vindicated, end quote. And the God who punishes to create a remnant. As Zephaniah describes the day of the Lord, all wickedness will be swept away. A remnant is left, definitely of Israelites, but possibly people from other places too. The theme of the remnant is consistent throughout the minor prophets, but it's significant here in these books focused on punishment because it shows God's mercy still peeking through. Then we move into the books about renewal, all of which take place after the exile. And you'll excuse me, notice that the renewal starts locally at the temple, then expands to Jerusalem, and ultimately to the entire nation of Israel. So the God who renews the temple. For Haggai, the rebuilt temple is necessary. It has to happen for a renewal. And he seeks to motivate the people to undertake the rebuilding, even though it failed once already. The God who renews Jerusalem... Zechariah describes the mending of Israel, has another reference to the Messiah, and identifies God as Israel's shepherd. And finally, the God who loves and renews Israel. In Malachi, God instructs Israel what it means to live by the covenant in a post-exilic world, and it ends with a renewed commitment to the covenant on God's part, at least. So this frame emphasizes well, that, that while God's justice must be upheld, God's mercy ultimately will get the final word, which we see reflected throughout the Old and New Testaments. The second frame that I'm going to suggest um, was established by John Watts in his article, A Frame for the Book of the Twelve, Hosea chapters 1 through 3 and Malachi. Watts points out that almost all of the references to God loving his people in the Minor Prophets show up in the first three chapters of Hosea and the Book of Malachi. There is reference to love elsewhere, but not really to God's love for his people. As I mentioned above, the first three chapters of Hosea describe how God commanded Hosea to marry an adulterous woman as an allegory for God's covenant with the Israelites. As many times as Gomer, daughter of Diblaim, left Hosea and slept around, Israel was sinning against God. Yet, God took Israel back over and over as he commanded Hosea to take Gomer back over and over. Watts argues that the message of God's love in Hosea softens the difficult themes found in the book of the Twelve. We are supposed to read this book first because it gives us a lens. A lot of stuff is going to go down in the next twelve books. Locusts, invading armies, destruction, exile... But throughout it all, we are asked to remember and trust that in the darkest of times, God loves Israel and Judah. Fast forward to the end, and in Malachi, God is still telling Israel that he loves them. And this is despite the fact that they're still not keeping the covenant. 
Malachi reads as a litany of ways that the remnant who has returned from exile is still disobeying God. Watts argues that Malachi 3.6 is a verse through which the entirety of the book of the Twelve should be interpreted. Quote, I, the Lord, do not change, so you, the descendants of Jacob, are not destroyed. End quote. God loves in the beginning, and God loves in the end, regardless of what happens in between. And this is the only reason that Israel, and to be fair, the entire human race, still exists. Because God loves us. In some ways, Malachi is a bummer of a book to end on, because essentially it shows us that God's punishment of Israel, Judah, and the surrounding nations didn't work. It didn't bring home a remnant of people who wanted to keep the covenant. It brought home a group of people who were filled with whining and complaints instead of gratitude, obedience, and worship. So instead of ending there, I want to return to one of the messianic prophecies in the book of the Twelve. Because for us, the scriptures don't end here. And this collection of prophecies points us towards what's still to come. Micah 5.2 refers to the ruler who will come out of Bethlehem, that is, the Messiah. And the, the whole book of Micah ends with God promising to forgive sins and be faithful because of his covenant with Abraham. These verses are in the exact middle of the book of the Twelve. I want to return to a quote from House that explains the importance of this. Quote, It is significant that Micah concludes with a statement on the removal of sin as it relates to the Abrahamic covenant. By closing this way, Micah conceives of a history that spans from the patriarchal era to the final judgment at the end of time. By Micah's day, God, God's promises to the patriarchs had resulted in exodus, Conquest, Davidic dynasty, national division, and impending destruction. Micah envisions an accompanying new exodus, a new David, and a new city of God. These promises mean that each successive generation has historically relevant pledges to sustain their present and to give hope to their future. End quote. God begins and ends the Book of the Twelve with assurances of his love and faithfulness, and almost exactly in the middle, he tells us that the story doesn't end there. There's a king to come, one who will fix the problem of sin forever. Thank you. Thanks for tuning into this episode of Cal St. G Academy. All of these podcasts are recorded at live events and lectures hosted by the Parish of Calvary St. George's in the city of New York. Want to hear more? Stop by the church sometime and attend one of these events live or swing by one of our many services where we seek to rightly divide the word of truth week by week with sermons that always point to where we end and God begins. Find out more about all of our events and offerings by visiting calvarystgeorges.org. And if these free podcasts have meant something to you and you feel led to support our ministry, head on over to calvarystgeorges.org giving and make a donation today. Thanks again, and we hope to see you soon.